0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for this time today that we can set aside to consider the claims that you put before us. Please give us the minds to be able to think clearly about this, to see the truth that lies before us and most importantly to be able to respond rightly. Father, we ask today that through this message you would bring us into eternal life and we ask this in Jesus. Amen. Now, throughout history, people have made some truly phenomenal claims. Uh, You can spend some quite entertaining time on the internet just Googling the sorts of things people have claimed. Some of them, at least in hindsight, quite clearly uh, ludicrous and and outlandish, although occasionally some pretty phenomenal claims that have turned out to be correct. Uh, Charles Jewell was the commissioner at the US Patent Office, and he uh, rather famously is quoted as having said, everything that can be invented has been invented. As he surveyed the patents before him, he just said, that's it, right? We, we our, our ingenuity has reached its limits. We can't invent anything new. Now, that kind of takes a slightly different color when you know what year it was that he said that in. The year was 1899. You just think about the advances that we've made since then. He really didn't know what he was talking about, did he? Or uh, the Scientific American magazine, in an article in... 1909, uh, published saying that the, the that the automobile has reached the pinnacle is clearly evident by the fact that in the last year no new advances have been made in automobile production. Now we're talking about this kind of car, right? This 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 is what they were talking about. We we that's it. We've made it. We're done. Twenty miles an hour. I mean, why would you want to go any faster than that, right? <clears throat> Phenomenal claims. Thomas Watson uh, was the chair of IBM. IBM is, is today's the, the fourth or fifth largest company in the world. Some other, words, they make computers, and uh, he was he was quoted as saying, 1943. I think there's a world market for maybe maybe five computers. I think I've got I counted seven or eight in my home now. Right, the, the phenomenal claims they just kind of miss the mark a bit. Now, okay, the worlds of medicine and technology are are rife for these kind of predictions that turn out to be completely wrong. But sometimes people make phenomenal claims that aren't of the sort of predictive nature, but rather about the world around us, and in particular about God, about religion, about the Bible, about Jesus. uh, One of the podcasts I listen to is uh, by by a man called Joe Rogan. He's an American comedian and, and martial arts commentator. And he has a a very interesting podcast because it goes for three hours. Every episode is three hours long. And he somehow does three or four of them a week. I, it, it's, it's quite long. But he just gets a guest on and they have a conversation for three hours. Uh, usually very interesting. And he was having a conversation with a man named Stephen Crowder. Uh, I'd, I'd never heard of these. If you, don't, if you don't know these people, it really doesn't matter. It's completely beside the point of the story. But uh, Stephen Crowder is an American comedian, writer, commentator, uh, American guy. But he's also a Christian. And at one point in the conversation, Joe says to him, Stephen, I don't know how you can believe it, right? Clearly the Bible is not true. Now, I think that's a rather phenomenal claim, to be honest. Now, Joe continued, he said, it can't be true, right? Jesus can't have risen from the dead. Because no one rises from the dead. Dead people don't come back to life. No one has ever risen from the dead. Therefore, Jesus can't have risen from the dead. And so, the Bible is clearly wrong. Now, forget for a moment about the kind of roundabout nature, circular nature of that argument, right? No one rises from the dead. Therefore, Jesus can't have risen from the dead. Therefore, no one rises from the dead. And you, you, don't worry about that for a moment. Just the nature of the claim is phenomenal. A third of the world's population... A third of human beings alive today somehow, at some level, base their lives on this book. Live off the back of the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a phenomenal claim to say the Bible is not true. But you know what? I want to start this morning with an even bigger claim. What I think is the biggest claim of them all. In fact, it's not so much my claim as John's claim what we had written before us. The claim is this, very simply, that the message that I'm going to speak to you today, the message that John spoke, can bring you into eternal life. How's that for a big claim? That there is a message, a set of words, that can bring you into eternal life, into immortality. Into a relationship with the living, powerful God of the universe. Into fellowship, not just with God, but with God's people. Into the joy that comes from finding your true and proper purpose. Just by talking. Just by sharing a message with you. Or it doesn't require special rituals or particular meditation or religious duties or The message that John spoke can bring you into eternal life. One of the biggest claims of them all. Have a look in 1 John and verse 2. Uh, You will find it helpful to have a Bible handy, mostly just to make sure that what I'm saying is coming from here. I don't want to be making stuff up. I'm teaching you this today. 1 John chapter 1, we are also going to read John chapter 20 through again, so if, if you've got that handy, keep a finger in it, but 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2. So that's 1 John, right, not John 1, just in case you're getting slightly lost. There's John and then there's 1 John, or First John, perhaps that's a better way of saying it. First John chapter 1. Verse 2, John says this, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. That's what he's preaching. Our message is the eternal life. Now, next week, we're really going to get into the body of the message, right? If you look down at verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. We're going to get really into the body of it next week, but I want to give you enough today to get a feel for it. But I want to start by talking about the basis every claim is based on something. Every claim that you make comes out of either it's your own experience and knowledge, like, uh, like Charles Duell with his claim about inventions, right? He's just looking at what's in front of him and his own imagination was lacking such that he couldn't see anything else that could possibly be invented. It could be logic and thought, like Joe Rogan, right? He has this little argument, well, no one rises from the dead, therefore Jesus can't have risen from the dead, therefore the Bible can't be true. It could be based just on pragmatics. Does it work? If it works, well, then it's a good claim. If it doesn't work, then it's not. What's the basis of the claim that this message can bring you into eternal life? Well, look back at verse 1. John sets it out for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked out and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. The basis of John's claim is his own eyewitness witness testimony he's not making something up it's not i heard it third hand right i read it on the internet somewhere so it must be true no this is what he lived he saw he heard he touched but did you notice it's a really weird sentence that verse one right which we have heard seen touched what is it concerning the word how can you see a word how can you touch a word. I mean, you can hear it, sure, but in fact, verse 2, the life appeared. How can this word of life appear? Well, the reality is that what it is that John saw and heard and witnessed was a person, namely Jesus himself. He is the life that appeared. He is the one who was with the Father and appeared to him. And he is the one who brings eternal life. He is the word of life. Most specifically in his own death, strangely. He's the one who brings life in his death because he passed through death and entered into new life. It's what we read in John 20. Flick back to John chapter 20. Come back, it's just a... An amazing story on so many different levels. John 20, if you've got one of these brown pew Bibles, it's page 1052. This event, I mean, is one of a few of them, but this is exactly what John is speaking about. When he says we are eyewitnesses of what's gone on. Not as Alison pointed out for us, Jesus had died. Jesus had been buried in a tomb. We're not talking uh, uh, like it's, it's not that he fainted and then kind of came to in the cool of the tomb again, right? The Romans were really good at killing people. Jesus was dead. They stuck a spear in him just to make sure. Like We're, we're not mucking around here. This wasn't make-believe or pretend. He was properly dead and then he was gone. He was no longer dead. And they're kind of going, what has just happened? Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fears of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands, his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Have a look. The holes are still there from the nails that pierced me. I've still got the, 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 the spear wound. It really is me. I really was dead. I really am alive. But look over at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the really tight crew of Jesus, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he said, "You're yeah, right. I mean, come on. What do you think I am? Really? I mean, unless I see his nail marks, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe you. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And right now, Thomas is just going, I'm in trouble. He said to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. See my hands, reach out, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Touch it. Touch it. Touch it. Probably, maybe not quite so frequently, a bit of a creep. But... And Thomas said, listen to this, verse 28. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I mean, we still have the saying, don't we? We still have that phrase, a doubting Thomas. That's where it comes from. He should have known, but he doubted. You're yeah, right. Unless I see it, unless I touch it, unless I can experience this risen Jesus, I am not going to. Oh, there he is my Lord and my God. This is a a Jewish man. He's a monotheist. He believes that there is one God and one God alone. His name is Yahweh. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he looks at Jesus and he commits this utter blasphemy of saying, my God. Well, it's blasphemy unless it's true. And Jesus, another good Jewish monotheistic man, accepts what Thomas says. He commits blasphemy too. Unless it's true. See, John says, we, we, we were there. You ever had someone say, man, you really should have been there. That day was just so good, you should have been there. Yeah, you ever had that, right? I, um, I used to enjoy fishing as a, as, a, as a kid. I had a mate of mine who... <clears throat> Uh, with his dad, just avid fishermen, they had the boat, so we used to go out with them. You know, you go out all day and, and just spend the day on the river fishing. I mean, fishing for real fish, right? Like, like 20, 30 thirty kilo-sized fish. Uh, n- none of this little, you know. Hey, got a snapper. You know, that's that was the size of our bait. Anyway, and so I um, love fishing, and just every now and then they'd come back from just a ripper day. I, I didn't go. I was a kid. I only got to go occasionally with them, and it's like, man, you should have been there. You should have been there that day. That's, it was amazing. It's when it happened. John says, We were there. We were there on that day. It was amazing. It happened. The risen Lord Jesus stood before us. You want to know if there is eternal life to be found? You want to know the basis of that claim? We were there. We're telling you the truth. God became flesh himself. It's one of the problems of some people these days that we want God to reveal himself to us on our terms. See, if you wanted to know God, if you want to know God, you had to be at the right time in the right place when he did it. Whereas people today will go, oh, okay, well, so God's real, is he? Well, all right, if God's real, go on, do something. Come on, Waiting. I mean, it doesn't matter. Just anything, right? Just give me, give me a sign. You come on, hurry up. What? nothing happened. Clearly, God's not real. As if, as if God owes us. As if God is subservient to us. If my children did that to me, I wouldn't respond to them. And yet, somehow, we think that we can strong arm God into doing our thing to show us. No, if you want to know God, you need to look at the right time and the right place. And the right time and the right place, the day when you needed to be there was this day, when the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, appeared. Now, of course, all of this assumes that the Bible is true. I'm speaking as if these events recorded for us in the gospel really happened. Joe Rogan clearly thinks I'm wrong. He doesn't believe that the Bible is true. And look, it's entirely possible that you don't either. If you're here today, maybe somebody invited you along. You're a skeptic, you're cynical of it. And you think, well, you know, it's a good story. I like that someone made it up, but not really real, is it? Now, I personally think that there are some very, very good reasons for believing the Bible to be true. It's a very strange book, the Bible. In fact, it's not, it's not really one book. It's a collection of books. It's a library. A collection of 66 books written across 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Authors. It contains poetry and history and biography and song lyrics and it's just this astonishing collection of works. And yet all of it, it's almost like a symphony, all of it holds together in this beautiful, beautiful concert that sings the story of Jesus Christ, the Saviour and King. I mean, just stop and imagine for a moment that somebody began to write something in the year 500 AD and they didn't finish it until last week. And it holds together as this cohesive whole with one theme and one message and one... It's just an astonishing thing. But of course, it's not astonishing, is it? If there is only one author. I mean, it was written by 40 different people, but it was written by God. It's a a historical document. John Dixon is a a, a public kind of Christian apologetics kind of guy in Sydney. And he made this challenge a number of years ago now. He said, uh, if somebody can find me just one full professor in a relevant field, so ancient history, classics or New Testament, at an accredited university, like at at a proper uni, who doesn't believe Jesus was real... I will eat a page out of my Bible. That was his challenge, okay? You just gotta find me one full professor in the relevant fields at a reputable university who doesn't believe Jesus was real. I will eat a page out of my Bible. His Bible is still complete. Okay, it's a historical document. There's very good reasons for believing it. Okay, I'm very happy to go into much more in depth with you if you like. But suffice to say, and that's not just Christian professors, right? That's atheist, agnostic, whatever. You pick it around the world, wherever you want to go. As far as history is concerned, these events happened. And you know what? As well as being a beautiful collection of works and being historically accurate, it just it works. The things that it talks about are true. If you want to be able to understand the world you live in, you need to have read this book. You need to see it through the world, through the lens of the Bible. So the basis then of this claim, that there is a message that can bring you into eternal life, is as good as it gets. Direct eyewitness testimony testified to in an utterly reliable source. Well, what's the content of the message? That's the basis of the claim. What's the content of it? What is this message that can bring you into eternal life? Now, as I said, we're going to spend a lot more time on that next week. Uh, I, I mean, that's verse 5 on in, in 1 John. But also, I don't want to not tell you what that message is because it's kind of important. Have a look again at verse 2. Back in 1 John, if you're still in John 20, come back to 1 John chapter 1. Look again at verse 2, right? The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Again, a very strange sentence. We proclaim to you what has appeared to us. See, the message is not so much, well, it is, the claim is not so much a message as it is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ who appeared, who brings life. Specifically, it's in his death and in his resurrection. I mean, look down at verse 5 again, right? Just, just get a little bit of a sense of where we're going. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. Here is the teaching. God is life and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, The message is one of darkness and light. The message is a message about God, that he is perfect, that he is pure, unblemished, untainted. There is no spot or shadow or mark in him. And the problem is that we are creatures of darkness. By nature, our rebellion against the one who is the source of light means that we live in darkness. And whenever light comes in contact with darkness, it just blows it away. The message is a message that says what we need is a substitute. We need somebody who will come and take the consequences of our darkness upon himself such that we can gain from him light. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He takes on our darkness, he took on the death that we deserve and smashed through death. Death couldn't hold him, God himself, light itself entered into our world and so Jesus now brings anyone who entrusts themselves to him out of darkness and into light, out of death, into life, out of separation and into love. See, the message, we're going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is really very simple at its heart. The life has appeared. Jesus has entered into our world, died and conquered death to bring new life to whoever will place themselves into his hands. Strange, isn't it, that that's the message that can bring you into eternal life if you will, but accept it. So the basis of the claim, the eyewitness, the content, is the Lord Jesus. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of it? I mean, John could have just been like, all right, cool, I've got eternal life, I'm done, see you later, everybody, woo! No need to preach it and proclaim it and spread it. Well, the purpose is fellowship. Look at verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make joy complete. There's a purpose to it. And the purpose, as it turns out, is the purpose for which we were created. Fellowship with God himself being restored back into union with Jesus, participating in God's life. It's a phenomenal thing. And because we are in fellowship with God through Jesus, fellowship then with one another, fellowship with John all the way back then, fellowship with each other today. A fellowship that brings with it great joy. We write this to make, it's a strange word, your joy complete, or it could be our joy complete. I think it's both For this is the purpose for which we exist, fellowship with God, being restored back into union with him, that brings about with it fellowship with one another. Okay, the basis of the claim, John's eyewitness testimony, the content is that life is found in Jesus, his death and resurrection in your place. Why? So that you can be united to God and therefore united with Christians. And that brings great joy. Now let me share a couple of reflections off the back of that. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, if you're somebody who's here today, you know yourself to not be a Christian, right? You're clear on that. I recognise this is a very big claim. I mean, it really is. I think it's the biggest. Out of all the ones we've spoken of, of, you pick whatever claim you want in history, this is the biggest. That this message can bring you into eternal life. But because it is so big, it is really worth being sure. I mean, whether you're going to accept it or reject the claim, please be sure, be certain, be confident. Work it out so that if you are going to reject it, you know the basis on which you are rejecting it. Or if you're going to accept it, as I would invite you to, you know the basis on which you will. I would invite you, come along to Christianity Explored. Uh, it's, it's, it's a short course. We'll run it over four nights this time. Uh, we'll have dinner together. I'll do a short presentation and then we'll have a chat. You can just listen or you can ask questions. You can participate to the level you want to. Uh, we're going to kick it off a little bit later on in the term and you'll find details on the flyer outside. But just come and grab me. Let's catch up, have a coffee. I want to hear you. I want to hear the basis for what it is that you believe and the way you view the world and share with you some more about this. See, this is a claim that's not just information. There are some things that you learn that is just, well, that's nice to know, but what's the point? Here's one of them. Uh, a Google is a one followed by a 100 zeros. Right, so if a million is a one followed by six zeros, a Google is a one followed by a 100 zeros. Yeah, isn't that cool? Not really. A Googleplex is a one followed by a Google zeros. Huh? Yeah, you really wanted to know that one, right? It is theoretically possible to count up to a Google in a lifetime. It would take millions of lifetimes to count up to a Googleplex. And you're sitting there going, well, that's lovely, but who cares? That's my point. There are some, this is information, it makes no difference whatsoever. But this claim isn't that sort of a claim. This is a claim that requires a response, See, without Jesus, you're just going to be left in darkness. Out of fellowship with God and lost to the joy that comes from God for eternity. It's serious. It's a claim that requires a response. So don't delay. At the very least, just plan to be at church throughout this term. At the very least, come back and listen to the message that John speaks. (laughs) Evaluate it. Now, Christians, I've got four reflections for you. Firstly, you cannot have Christianity without the risen Christ. It's impossible. You, you, you can be a, a, a Confucian without Confucius. You just need the teaching. You don't need the person. You can be a Buddhist without Buddha. Right? You, you don't need the person. You, you can be Muslim without the person of Muhammad. You just need his teachings. You cannot be a Christian without the risen Christ. It's not enough to say, oh, well, I've got the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and I'm just going to be a good moral person. No. For it is the Lord Jesus himself who brings life. It is the Lord Jesus himself who gives us light and brings us out of darkness. It is the man that we have a relationship with, not just somebody whose teachings we think are pretty neat. Secondly, you cannot be a Christian without the Bible. And I know this one's slightly more controversial, right? God, God can and does do miracles, right? God, like he did with Saul, right? God can go and just find somebody and just boom, revelation and poof, you become a Christian and, and you're off and running. God can do that. But the normal mechanism that God employs is the witness about Jesus. Jesus is the word of life. And the apostles, those who were there and saw and touched and, held and heard, they are the ones who Jesus commissioned to go and tell others. Go and tell them about that day. You were there, you saw it, go and tell others that they too might believe and be saved. It's like Jesus said to Thomas, you, blessed are you, you saw and believe. How blessed are those who don't see and believe, who all they have is this witness. This is the normal means by which people come to Christ. And so just as a Christian, have you bought that lie that you can be a Christian without the Scriptures? Because i tell you what, so often our lives seem to suggest that. We pay no attention. We come to Sunday once a week and the preacher rabbits on for a while and then we go home, right? That's it, don't need the Bible. Thirdly, you can't be a Christian without fellowship. The whole purpose of what God is doing is gathering a people. It's like a bunch of grapes. You get a bunch of grapes still connected to the stem and you plonk them on the table and they're all kind of separate. But then as you pull them upwards, they get joined together. As God pulls us up towards himself, we get joined together. A people for his own. It kind of bugs me to be honest. When people talk about coming to church for the sake of having their private time of worship, of having their private little moment with God, by all means, have those. I'm not saying don't have time with God. But if you think that gathering with God's people is for the sake of you somehow doing your own little private thing and then going home again, you've missed the point. Our culture is individualistic. Our culture says you as an individual are what matters. Nothing else matters. God says the opposite. God says, I'm gathering you into a body that you might serve and build and love and care for others. Created for fellowship. Do you want to know what the sign of a Christian church is? How, How would you know? If you walked into a place and you're like, I think this is a Christian church, how would you know it was or it wasn't? It's not the building, I'll tell you that much for sure. I mean, we're a lovely churchy building, but that's got nothing to do with it. It's not stained glass windows. It's not, having a, it's not having a big cross. It's not having tacky music, right? None of these things are signs. I love our music, by the way. So <coughs> we love each other. Is that there is fellowship. By this will the world know you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. If we have fellowship. That's why morning tea after church is so important. For a while, we've been trying to finish church with something other than, please join us for morning tea. Make it somehow a bit more spiritual, you know, go in peace to love and serve or whatever it might be. But actually, you know what? That, that, that time is so crucially important. When else do we have fellowship with each other? When else do we take just a little bit of time? Eight o'clock, they shake hands on the way out. So it's a little bit more old school, right? The minister and the preacher stand at the door and how are you, how are you? And Joe, bless his heart, he can't help himself but talk. And so the queue just forms all the way in and people are just like, oh, come on, I'm standing in this queue, what's going on down there? It's brilliant. Because it's just this little moment of fellowship. It's forced fellowship. Be nice to each other. I love it that there are people still here two hours after church just kind of hanging around going, well, I guess I'd better go home now because <laughs> everyone else has left. It's brilliant. Fourthly, you can't be a Christian without joy. We write this to make our joy, to make your joy complete. See, as God gathers us to one another, we rejoice in him and we rejoice in each other. I, people can be horrible. Right? I, I'm not, I'm not sugar-coating it. And unfortunately, even people within churches and Christians can be horrible. That, that it's... And yet, you just stop and reflect for a moment about the greatest times of joy in your life. And I'm prepared to bet that most, if not all of them, involve other people. Finding joy in them. Finding joy with them finding joy alongside them as God gathers us together. The basis was the eyewitness. The content of the message was that life is found in Jesus with the purpose to bring us into fellowship with him and with each other for eternal joy. Now next week, as I said, a whole lot more on the message. What is the content of the message? It's going to be fleshed out for us a lot more. It's a great week, I think, for two kinds of people. It's a great, it'll be a great week for you, that's the first kind of people, because you've already been here the first week and you kind of got the teaser and you want to know more now. If you, you've heard the little bit of the message and we're going to get the rest. But it'll also be a great week, I think, for somebody who thinks they know what Christianity is about. For somebody who's like, I, just, I, I know, I already know what it's about, I, I, you know, you don't have to tell me what it's about, I already know. Rightly or perhaps even wrongly, maybe that's even the best kind of person. Just to get you thinking about who you might invite to come along next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. uh, the, the, The word of life who entered into our existence, made himself flesh to take on our darkness, our sin, our rebellion. And Father, thank you that in Jesus you defeated the darkness. You brought him into light, into eternal life a life that he offers to share if we will but accept. And so, Father, we ask in each one of us that you would make us those who do accept, that we'd take hold of the life that is in Jesus with fellowship with you and with each other for the joy that lies before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.